back in the fur shed. This is the Trapping Today podcast. I'm Jeremiah Wood. In case you haven't picked up on that, it's been 92 episodes. This is number 93, so I've been here for quite a while. Some of you are just tuning in for the first time, or you've picked up on this podcast just a few episodes ago, and some of you have been with us since the beginning. And some little guy that's been with me since the beginning is helping me with the podcast. Why don't you say hi, young man? What are you doing today? Where are you? You're in the trapping shed? Alright, well why don't you keep it quiet. I'm going to do the intro to the podcast and then we're going to go and do something fun. Okay? Sound good? Okay. The Trapping Today podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. Cots Bros is a great place to get your trapping supplies. Kyle and Kellen are working hard uh, shipping out orders right now. I'll tell you what, you you put in an order, you're going to get that thing shipped almost immediately. Um, They're like machines over there. Excellent service, excellent prices, uh, people you can rely on, um, and big supporters of the podcast from uh, the very beginning, right when we started getting advertisers on here. So uh, thanks to Cots Bros, and be sure to uh, place an order, give them some of your business. Podcast is also brought to you by Fur Harvesters Auction Incorporated. If you want to uh, send your fur out to the auction, you know I've I've never been a guy that says you need to sell all your fur in one place. So I'm not going to tell you send all your fur to Fur Harvesters. I believe you got to uh, head your bets. You got to send fur a little bit of fur to um, maybe sell local, a little bit to get tanned, uh, probably a good portion of it to send to an auction house or a fur buyer if you have one nearby. Um, but I really feel that fur harvesters is is a great place to sell fur. They they get some of the best prices around. They work really hard. This is an auction house that's run by trappers. It really means a lot to them to get the most value for your fur and their fur because there's a lot of guys that work at fur harvesters that have their fur in the auction as well. So you can learn more at furharvesters.com. You can find out what they've gotten for past auction results. You can find out where to ship your fur. They have a a huge network all over the United States and Canada of receiving depots uh, to send your fur to. So check them out, furharvesters.com. If you're not on the internet very much except for just listening to this podcast, call them up, 705-495-4688. All right, we have a couple of things to get into really quickly tonight, and then I got a really awesome interview that I did with Eric Martin at Neil Olson's Trappers Weekend that I'm excited for you to hear. Uh, But first, I had a question from uh, Kristen. And Kristen, I don't believe listened to the podcast prior to now, but she was a YouTube person. She she saw some of my YouTube videos and had a very good question that a lot of people probably have. And, and I was hoping that maybe if I discussed it here, we could you could get thinking about it a little bit and maybe you're in the same situation. So she's getting trapping for the first time, just kind of getting started, and she's going to start with muskrats, which I believe is a great place to get started trapping. They're easy to trap. Uh, it's easy to find sign if you can get into a, a good rat area. There's not a lot of equipment to buy, and everything's small, everything's quick, everything's easy. So rats are a good choice, but the only issue she has is one that I had in the past, is no place to work up fur. 
So if you live in an apartment, if you live in kind of a built-up area, or a town or city, and you don't have a garage you can work in, you don't have a shop, I mean, think about it. A lot of us trappers getting started, you know, there's a lot of trappers that start out and they're farm boys. And so they grew up on a farm, and what does a farm have? About every single machine shed and shop and garage that you can imagine. So there's all kinds of places to 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 be able to set up a little corner of and work work up fur and store your traps and everything. That's an excellent, excellent setup, but not all of us have that opportunity. So when I first started trapping in Utah, of course, when I trapped in Maine, I had actually had an old ice fishing cabin that my dad gave to me to use as my trapping shed. And so that was kind of my spot. But when I went to Utah, I was kind of on my own. I was renting an apartment with another guy. It was kind of a, like a fourplex. So there were other people around. We were right in the middle of the town. There was just all kinds of people. There really was no place to work up fur. And I was trapping coons and muskrats uh, outside of town in the ditches. And I was doing really well. I, I got a whole pile of fur. The problem was I did not have a place to work it up. Uh, Kristen asked, you know, can you skin it out in the field? And you absolutely can. The problem is it's extremely cold out there. And if the wind's blowing and it's 20 degrees or 30 degrees out, and I mean, that can get really uncomfortable. It's hard to get your fingers working. You get cold and you can't really do much and you slow down. It's just not a good situation. So I did I did that once or twice. I, I learned pretty quick that wasn't a good idea. I had a little unheated garage I had access to. I used that a little bit. That didn't work out. I did some fur there. It, it was all right. I mean, basically, what I did, and you may or may not want to do this, I just went in the house, and I, I skinned muskrats in the house. So I just took, like, a big uh, plastic tub, like a big... Uh, big one of those big containers like like 15 20 gallon containers and had a couple of those and I'd have my fur in there and I'd have have it set up to where everything that I all the mess that I made was falling into that tub so nothing would get on the floor in the house had lots and lots of paper towels and was very careful and I was able to make that work pretty good I would not have done that if I was getting into fox and coyotes uh, or, or anything else out there Actually, a lot of the coons, I, I found a local fur buyer in that area, and I sold them in the round because I didn't want to have to deal with them in the house. So I know that's not a great answer. Um, some people say, well, just you know, find a local trapper that you can become friends with, and they'll let you use their place. And Sometimes that works, but that's not always an option. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. So what do you do? So I was thinking about Kristen's request uh, for a little while and I get an idea because this is something that in recent years has become more available and seems to fit the bill for someone who doesn't really have a, a spot to work up their fur. So we do a lot of ice fishing up here in northern Maine. It's super cold and something that's become a lot more popular recently is these Eskimo ice tents. They're basically a portable ice fishing cabin they are like a pop-up tent um, I don't I don't know how else to describe them they're just like this big oversized tent with no floor on them 
and they fold down to the size of like maybe two camp chairs, two, three camp chairs put together. And they pop right out to, you can get them like six feet by 12 feet or or four feet or five by eight, something like that. Um, the Eskimo brand is probably the most popular right now, but there's a number of different brands. You can get them for two, three hundred bucks, three, four hundred bucks, depending on the size and the quality that you're looking for. But basically, this is something that you could pop right out real quick. You've got a shelter. You've got a shelter from the wind. Maybe you've got a little privacy. If there's some people around, you don't really want them to see you skinning fur. And you can put a propane heater in there. And the insides of those shelters are pretty dark. So you can they do have uh, little plastic windows, but I would suggest one of those new modern LED light systems where you can get kind of a battery-powered LED light that will light that whole thing up real nice. So that's kind of my suggestion. And if anybody else has other ideas, just uh, shoot them off to me, jrodwood at gmail.com. I'm sure Kristen will appreciate that. Um, but hope that helps. And, and uh, always, it's a case where if when you get into trapping, you're going to have a lot of hurdles and barriers to... Uh, to go through and to jump over and to work around, but you can always find a way around them and over them and through them to keep on trapping if you want it bad enough. All right, moving on the next topic, uh, the No BS Lures Canine Extreme Junior Trap. I've been raving about this thing, talked about it here, talked about it on YouTube, and then I hit a roadblock, and I could not deal with the pan tension on this thing. Um, I got half a dozen from No BS Lures and five, six pounds pin tension uh, on all of them. They're four coiled and, and it's been a struggle. So I've, I've had other people who have had the same issues who I've talked to. Um, not a clear solution as of yet, but I'm trying different things. I did a whole bunch of filing, a whole bunch of bowstring wax, everything that's been recommended I've tried and I haven't quite got there. I've got a they, they vary a lot. There's no real consistency. I, I just don't understand why. But I've got a few down to three and a half, four pounds, four and a half, five pounds, and I'm, I'm still working on them. I did watch a couple of YouTube videos which were pretty informative. One by M.O. Trapper. I assume that stands for Missouri Trapper. He had a good overview of the Canine Extreme Juniors. And he, for him, the bowstring wax thing worked pretty well. Uh, another video from a guy with the channel titled Lonely Den Trapping. That's Lonely Den Trapping. Uh, he had a lot of the same issues that I'm having. And he actually did something I hadn't yet considered. So on the pan, where the night latch is on the pan, where it connects to the little block that's welded to the jaw to set the trap, uh, that's a pretty wide area where it makes contact with that block. And so the pan to jaw connection is really wide. There's probably a lot of friction there. I mean, I've tried I've tried um, buffing a bunch of that off with a little Dremel tool. Hasn't helped. But he actually cut that surface area down substantially with a grinder. And that's my next thing I'm going to try. So if you can imagine a, you know, where, where your pan where your dog on a typical dog trap catches your pan the dog is going to be I don't know maybe a quarter inch wide if that and this connection is double that so the double the amount of surface area for friction to 
kind of make it a little harder for that pan to fire. So that's my next step. I'm going to try cutting that down. The one thing I did, I took I took two springs off these four coils off one of them, and that did the trick. I mean, the two coil was just fine as far as pan tension. Uh, unfortunately, though, what that means is if you just two coil these traps, they're really heavy duty, rugged trap. I get the laminations on the outside of the jaws. Uh, it it could potentially slow that jaw speed down quite a bit. So I don't really want to if I don't have to. So another thing, you know, just just kind of working through things. Kendall at Nope these traps. They're such an awesome trap. If you could just figure out that pan tension, I'd buy three, four dozen of these. Um, but but until then, I'm I'm going with MB550s, and I'm gonna keep guys. All right, I think that's it for introductory stuff. So now let's get into the mean to do this for a long time. I was looking forward to the opportunity. And thanks so much to Eric for actually being willing to sit down and do this with me and, and talk trapping. Tell us, you know, give a little guys that listen with young kids. There are, a, there's a little bit of language in this one and uh, I don't, it's, it's not, it's really not that bad, but I mean, I would advise any parents listening with young kids, maybe you want to listen to this one ahead of time just to make sure that it's going to be acceptable for your kids to listen to, but, uh, but really not a, not a big one. Uh, not a, not a issue as far as the overall interview. So um, a few of the things we talk about. Eric's just a great guy, and he's so into trapping. It's just it, it's the enthusiasm he has about trapping, even at his age, is incredibly contagious. It gets me excited. Uh, he has lots and lots of knowledge. Uh, interestingly, he talks about you know how he took uh, he took instruction from Craig O'Gorman and Bob Went talked about those guys and he had a little bit of hesitation in some things because he's learned a lot of things from those guys and he was a, a little hesitant about about sharing stuff that you know taken a lot of decades to figure out and to learn and and a lot of expense in, in instructions so so he hesitated a little bit there Eric gives some great advice toward the end of the interview for young trappers that are interested in in trapping and uh, and how to shape your career to to be able to trap in in a little bit of something that hit home to me uh, about spending a trip going trapping. He's he's gone out west quite a bit and just talking about the expense of a trapping trip and the idea that you know what y- you spend a couple grand on a trapping trip you're never even going to notice it in a few years. Just go ahead and do it. So with that, let's get into the interview with Eric. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. Forgive the audio again. There's a little bit of background noise. There's a difference between my volume and his volume. Just things when you're at a convention, there's a lot going on. Sometimes it's not always perfect, but I hope you can uh, hear through all that and hope you enjoy it. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, we are on. All right. Eric Martin. Good to Jeremiah. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Here we are at Neil's. Absolutely. I met you here a couple years ago. I remember there was this this guy giving a demo on uh, bobcat trapping out in Wyoming, was it? Yep. And uh, after the demo, I thought, "Geez, I got to go talk to this guy." That was that that was a lot of fun, and and I had just been out in Montana for five years and spent some time trap or trying to trap, and then you were talking about a bunch of the same things. So. Yeah. No, I spent. I was very blessed to have been able to travel all throughout the West. You know. Naturally, having trapped all my life, while I was out, I took advantage of the opportunity. And there again, 
was fortunate to meet some people out there that kind of helped shorten the learning curve. And it, it helped, and I really enjoyed that. It's, uh, it's addicting. It's very addicting in that, one, you either love the country or it intimidates you. Uh, and two, if, if you need to catch something every day, at least for me, Bobcat trapping in the winter in Wyoming is not your game. <laughs> no, but it's but it's a big thing when you catch one. Yeah, it's it's a big thrill. And there's some days you catch a uh, a lot of the areas I trapped because there again I didn't grow up there and and was kind of the late guy on the scene I had to walk into. Yeah. So when you walk in and you catch a couple cats on one walk-in that's a big day i mean that that's a good time so you were basically going uh, these roads other people were trapping on the road and you were just going way beyond yeah it uh what i ended up doing and here again this is back before the the computer age i mean technology is advancing so fast that that it's it's essentially beyond me um like now in, t in today's world they've got the eye hunt that's just come out since I started trapping out there, which before it was, you get all the maps available and you figure out where the public land is and you go in it, oh, we got a piece of public land here while well, right next to the road, them guys have been trapping that forever. Yeah. And uh, I just walk in beyond them or someplace where nobody was parked and you'd see, it'd be nothing but sagebrush and you'd look and there a mile. Yeah, there's some cat rocks. Well, let's <laughs> let's just go. That's where they are. We got to go get them. And yeah, that's how I ended up doing. It maybe not the most efficient, but it's just. But but it was public ground, and you right. had you had access to it. So that's what you had to do. And you put up. You got quite a few cats. Yeah, I I mean I was pretty consistent in that. And here again, maybe this betrays how poor a trapper I am. But there was one year I had more cats come by a set than I caught. You know, so in theory, at least I interest them enough to get them to come. I mean, Christ, have them step on levers. And, <laughs> and there again, it's all just an evolving paradigm that, you know, I need to do a better job blocking. I didn't really realize how quick you could force a cat. Now, there's other stuff that later in the season you need to do to get them to work a set. Um, and then... If they work it, they're going to come by again, but if you don't do something different, they've already satisfied their curiosity. Yeah. Just adding a different lure or a different bait isn't going to cut it hmm. at all. So let's take a step back, because you're born and bred in Maine. Yep, absolutely. Right close by, I assume. Yep. So you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got started. Um, well, when I was a kid, uh, my dad trapped, and he, uh, I would say, recreational trapper. And uh, he, him as a child, they were dirt poor. I mean, uh, unconsciously dirt poor. That um, he had a great uncle that used to come by the house. His father died when he was a young kid, and he had a great uncle that was a fisher hunter. And you'd come by his house, and he'd tell my grandmother, Doris, give me a couple of biscuits in a bag. I'll be gone two or three days because he'd found a fisher track and he would track it so he'd and, just hunt him on foot in, until he got it 
because that was $200, which was a fortune. Yeah. And then he'd come back and he would help her out with some. And then he'd go have a spree. <laughs> and uh, he'd live the life and when he needed some, he'd go find another fisher. And then I had a great uncle that lived up the street that was in World War One, And uh, he went over, got gas, came back, and he made a promise that I'm never leaving Maine again. And I'm never working again. All I'm going to do is hunt, fish, and trap. And that's all he ever did the rest of his life. <laughs> and, uh, so that probably had an impression on you. Why, as a kid, I can remember this clear as a bell. This is 55 years later. It was a summer, it was a spring morning. I'd come out before daylight. I was escaping the house. And uh, he was on the front lawn. <laughs> and I looked at him and said, what are you doing? He said, come here, I want to show you something. He was digging up dandelion grains. He said, here. I said, well, why are you doing that? He said, because I'm going to eat them. I said, really? He said, yeah, here. You want to know about this in case you need to eat them. And that, from that point onward, I mean, I, I hung around him whenever. You know, there again, as much as he'd tolerate, you know, having a kid hanging around. But Yeah. And then, you know, I started trapping myself, a little pond up the street, on and on and on, and then went through the high school years. Then went away in the army and came back and trapped in head hounds and whatnot. Right up and through all uh, the late 80s, you know, got through the fur boom, thank God. <laughs> and then in the 90s, I didn't trap that much. I, I had some uh, financial obligations I needed to meet. And God, I would work. Of seven days a week, anywhere from 12 to days, a lot of days we worked 24 hours a day. Hmm. And it was just to make as much money as we possibly could and got to a place where everything was back on, on an even keel. And in that time frame, I ended up in 1989, I went out to Idaho Hope for the first time, looked around and said, this is where I belong. <laughs> and made it back in 1992 and never left until 2015. Really? So you were out there for quite a while? Yeah. And, uh, what part of Idaho? Well, I mean, I, I lived everywhere from Washington to Arizona to all up and down the Rocky Mountains. Wherever the work was, that's where I would go. But yeah. while I was there, I naturally gravitated towards, you know, guys that hunted, fish, trapped. Yeah. And you did some big game guiding? Yeah. Um, I worked for an outfitter in Montana for a season and uh, worked for an outfitter in Wyoming in the Teton Wilderness for four years. And I really enjoyed that. And, and see, there again, it was just, as a kid growing up in Maine, I can remember running to the store when Outdoor Life came out. Yeah. Because they had, in the fall, they had all the big game articles. And, you know, and always wanted to pack horses and mules. Well, I ended up, I'm going to learn how to do this, and I ended up learning how to do it. Yeah. It, uh, really, I, I really liked it out there. Um, I came back to Maine for family, and if I possibly can do it, I'll go back out there, and that's that's where I'll finish out is, yeah. is out there. Yeah. So um, do you remember the first animal you trapped? Yeah, muskrat. Absolutely. I, I rode a, I, to this day, I remember I, went, I had a bicycle, and uh, I was riding up the street, and here's how times changed. I, I know I was in grade school. And I had a bicycle with a basket on it, and I put the traps in. I was going to check them the next day, and the old man said, "You better take the 22. It's a pistol, in case you catch a coon." You know, 
heading the basket, rode up the street. As I drive by, people would wave. You know, today, Christ said, have a call the SWAT team. <laughs> yeah, they put know, your parents in jail. Yeah, for I mean, but it, it, it wasn't wasn't a big deal. It yeah. just happened. You know, and, I mean, in high school, there was more guns in, in our high school parking lot than are sold in Walmart. And the entire, I mean, the teachers came in with their hands bloody from shooting a deer. They had rifles in their trucks. <laughs> and we never thought about killing nobody. Yeah. I mean, so I don't, all this other stuff, I don't know what's going on. But. Yeah, it's it's crazy, but, but it's not people in the trapping community that are. No, that are and doing. it's and very rarely is it a lawful gun owner that, that does something wacky. Yeah. So you so you trapped you trapped during the fur boom and that was yeah. that was I'm guessing some pretty good times. Well, it, I, I trap and coon hunt with dogs and I had a really good coon dog where we'd go out and it was getting twenty five dollars just for cooning around and we'd go out and get anywhere from five to ten coon in the night and just marry him what was fur by and just you'd drive up leave him you put a card on it and then go to bed get up, come back, and you pick up your money in the evening, put the gas in the truck and go hunting again. I mean, it, it was good times. Now, I never, I wasn't anywhere near as good a trapper then as I am now. I wished I was. Yeah. But, uh... Now, that was a time where it was a little, everybody, the common theme is that it was very hard to get information back then. It was, there was a lot of voodoo in it that, uh, because, see, there again, in, in today's world, it, it, trapping is just like hunting. The worst thing that ever happened to the, to the guiding industry was uh, all these hunting shows. In 30 minutes, they go out and kill a record book elk. Well, that ain't the way it works. And that's the same with trapping. Today, a kid can get up and you can learn all the sets in, in two hours. Yeah. Jesus, it was, they didn't, no one was showing you nothing. And in my family, they pretty much trapped what I call a, uh, I guess you call them schoolboy sets, but I mean, you catch Coon and Fisher, and occasionally he was a superhero if you caught a fox. Yeah, you there weren't any coyotes Australia. at the time. They just were making a, a break into this country. They were just starting. Um, but the guys that could catch them, God, they were, they were magicians. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how that has changed over time. But so, so, why don't you tell us maybe a little bit about that, more about that Wyoming trap, bobcat trapping, because that was that's pretty exciting to hear a lot about. Um. It, it, the thing for me that I like about it is, one, I like the country. I just, I find it, a lot of people say it's barren and ugly. Yeah. But it's, to me, it's just beautiful. It, oh, yeah. And even though it's cold and the wind's blowing, you rest assured the wind's blowing, the sun's out, and the sun's brilliant. Yeah, and it makes it makes you feel great to be alive. It, it, it's cold, um, like the old saying is: "Christ, you can snow two feet in Wyoming, but by the morning it's all blown into Colorado." Yeah. So, <laughs> unlike Maine, where you get two feet of snow, you it, got two feet of snow. It's there for the rest of the, it's there till April, till the it's end. There, of April. you can walk. I never wore snowshoes. Yep. There's sometimes I probably should have, but I didn't. And I just worked the high ground where the wind was blowing, which that's where the game's going to work. Yep. And I just went by the theory. I'd, on the cats, I'd set out a, 
out ahead of where I thought the travel lanes were going to be to catch the tones. Yeah. And most of the tracks you saw in the early season would be tabbies and kittens. And I, was, I just set out ahead of Tom's. There was one, it was, I think it was 48 days before the Tom come through, but I knew the one was coming through there. And it, yeah. But that's a long time to walk was in that, and look at an empty track. Had you seen sign or you just knew based on the looks of the guy? I was just gambling. Yeah. That if there, if there ever was going to be a Tom Bobcat and it was during breeding season, he was going to come down this ridge. Yeah. It just, everything led to it. And... The track wasn't going to do any good sitting in the truck, and it was basically, do you really know what you're doing, or don't you know what you're doing? <laughs> you know, and it's kind of a test. I refuse to accept. There's a bit of stubbornness. I, well, I refuse to accept that this was a dumbass move. <laughs> yeah, and yep. it was forty some days yeah. later. You finally. Yeah, but there again, you see, I'd taken the structure from Cargo Gorman to. Got to give big kudos to him. He. Taking instruction from him. When did you do that? Uh, 2000. Okay. And that was the best money I've ever spent. Yep. The very best. And uh, the only thing I could say is when you go to take instruction from him, it's like stepping in to a shower because the flood of information <laughs> comes. And it's up to you to pick out what it is you're lacking. Cause you aren't you gonna can't absorb it all. It all right? Oh, God, no. No, because and you get every penny that you pay in that. As soon as you sit your ass in that truck, boom, he's off. Yeah. And it's, okay, 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 okay. This is important. And I tried writing stuff down, and it was like 45 minutes into it, I just threw it into the duffel bag <laughs> and said, it's up to you, kid. You, you, you've got to remember this. Yeah. And that was a giant leap forward for me is I say that's the best investment that's paid dividends that instruction has paid for itself and in that cat's case it was things that he'd showed me led me to believe that this was it and so you had that confidence that there was absolutely no doubt that I knew the set was operable there was absolutely no doubt about that I knew that if ever if there was a bobcat in there he was going to come through there the, the geography told me so and I just after you look at it so much you can see how they're going to travel and I knew that that was the point where I was going to get it now that didn't mean someone wasn't going to catch him five miles away or yeah or he was going to get run over by a car or, or whatever was going to happen but I and I just I I knew that they is here again as Craig says you can pick the place you can't pick the time yeah you know just I, I know and it, by God I was rewarded very well yeah that was the most extreme example probably of that. yeah but there's there's been a lot of time and there's been a lot of sets where you set them and nothing's come through that doesn't mean that it's not, it's a, a bad location it just means yeah. time ran out yeah so you trapped South Dakota yep. as well. Yeah, I worked with a, a friend of mine here again. It, I got to give credit to uh, Larry and Joe Bowden from South Dakota that they both kind of helped me in the cat trapping tour. And I w later went on 
and Joe had a contract to the state of South Dakota doing a bobcat study. And I helped him trap cats in that study. And that was kind of a revealing. Was it? The, the things, yeah. It was, because there again, it, it, was, it was prototypical cat country, but there wasn't any cats. But there again, I th we came to the deduction that they were, instead of in the rocks, because the rabbits were low, they were, they'd moved out, they'd migrated yeah. out to a different food source. Well, in this study, he was, the state wanted to find out how many cats were in this area. Well, you're confined to this area. Jesus Christ, there ain't nothing here. Yeah. If we and were, next year, they might be there. Right, but if, if we were trapping for money, we ain't <laughs> sitting here. We're right. gone. Yeah. And so that taught you something, right? I mean, why? Well, yeah, it's. Or it, just reinforce the idea that. Why well, it, it's kind of the old adage: no, no cookies, no kids. Hmm. In that, if you don't have rabbits, and there's nothing else. I mean, there was nothing for them to eat there, but yet the state wanted to know why they were there. Well, they ain't here right now. They're out. You know, they were either on the prairie dogs or out looking for sage grouse or the antelope. Or, or they moved on to something else. Yeah. So it didn't really give a true representation of the amount of cats. They would they would be there in the in the good weather, but in the winter time they weren't there. Yeah. But you had other places that you trapped. They were there all winter. Yes. Huh. But if the food was there, and that, that's another thing. Uh, here in Maine, there's a, there's a, I'm convinced there's a change. Before the snow comes, if you've got berry bushes, sand, and turkeys, you've got bobcats. There's a time break. And I think it's about the first week of deer hunting, both the coyotes and the bobcats go into your black growth. Spruce. And and spruce fir, fir hemlocks yep. down along the beaver flows. Yeah. Huh. And that's where you're going to find them. The and out there, um, if there isn't, if there aren't rabbits in the rocks, they're going to find food. Um, there's a lot of things that after you put your time in, you'll figure out on them. Um, that there's, there's major cat movements throughout the year. Okay. And I'm not going to say too much about it because I've spent a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> finding, this, finding this stuff out and I'm not giving nothing away. <laughs> you know. But they, that's, that's part of the deal is it, just like in fly fishing. Yeah, you can catch some fish, but once you study the bugs and learn the hatches, then you really start catching fish. Yeah, and, and you may be able to catch bigger fish with right. certain, certain and, techniques. And you, and you can select the fish you're going to catch. Yeah. You know, once you start the study etymology and rise patterns and things like that and reading the wa holding water and stuff then you then you're hunting trout yeah well that's the same once you involve yourself into the study of your cat then that's when it turns on right that's when it's really becoming fun because then it's do I really know what I think I know <laughs> yeah yeah and you get to test that and yeah and work and on and sometimes it. you prove you don't know shit and then other times you prove yeah I, I actually am pretty clever <laughs> <laughs> now, history. Yeah. Um, you had talked 
we talked a while back about Walter Arnold. Yeah. And you're kind of the guy that convinced me to go down to the Orono Library and dig deep yeah. into all that research. And uh, just tell me a little bit. You, you're a reader like me. You know, you, yeah. you've re read tons and tons of trapping information, old books on trappers and everything. Yeah, and, and there again, anything I know, I, I don't claim any... I don't think I've ever had an original idea <laughs> because I've absorbed so much information. I don't know what I've gotten from somebody else or what I've actually thought up on my own. So I claim no origination yeah. because I'm just a, a composite of everything I've, I've taken in. So what gave you that desire to read read stuff like that and to really get into it? Well, cause, uh, I mean, even as, as a young child, I liked to read. That was one thing my parents did. Is, learned to read because when I was growing up there were still people that didn't know how yeah illiteracy was still it, it wasn't uncommon and that was a big thing and I just enjoyed it is it, when I read like say a story a horse is running through the sage well when I read it I can I can see the horse going through the sage and hear its hoofs and I know what it sounds like when the sage is being broken by the horses and I know what it oh. smells like yeah so were you, did you read all those those fur fishing games from back when Arnold was writing? Yeah, it is. It, it, I got went down to Cronks and saw Arnold. My father took me down. Really? Um, when Arnold was with Cronk and uh, met him down there, which you that know, must have been around the seventies. Yeah, early seventies. You know, and there again, it was just a glad hand throw. Right. Yeah. You know, because there was tons of people there, but. Uh, he was pretty famous at the time, or all oh, those right, newspaper yeah, articles yeah. of him. The because yeah. he was pretty one of the only guys that was still doing that, just right. living out. And um, it w it was the end of an era, even up in the north woods of Maine, that um, the roads were opening it up. Yeah, um, more people, more recreational opportunities. Airplanes were, you know, there was more planes coming in the mystery of the wilderness was being removed. Yeah. And now today, with the DeLorme Atlas ruined northern Maine. <laughs> it, it's, it's ruined a lot of places. People locally, you know, took years to know how to get to these roads. Now, you turn around and look, and Jesus, there's everybody from all over the country here. How yeah. the hell do you figure And now out? you got the aerial maps right on your phone, right. and you can pop, th pop that up, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's roads everywhere now. But yeah, I, I remember one of Arnold's articles was an, a log truck could come in within a short distance of his camp. They just put a road in, and he was watching that thing load itself up, and he took pictures yeah. of it, and it was like that was a big deal. Yeah. But, but yeah, he he wrote a lot, and um, who else we get? You know, we, Sam White grew up not far from here. Right. Um. Of course, Lynch, you know, the Lynch was... Yep, he was up in my neck of the yeah, woods. Yeah, Ashland. Um, they, they... Herb Lennon, you know, was a big guy that I always used to like. And, of course, you know, everyone knew Daly. Um, yep. Was the editor there forever and for a fishing game. Uh, you know, I used to like Nelson's stuff, but I really didn't appreciate who he was until later years, until I researched the guy. Right. And it, it, uh, there again, you often don't, it's kind of like a painter isn't famous until he's been dead 50 years. Right. You know, unfortunately, that's the same with Bill Nelson, I think. Yeah. 
One of the things that, that intrigued me about Nelson is how much information he shared with people. But he, see, there again, and, and this is the same with Craig. You can buy Craig's box and get a, a tremendous amount of information. You can buy his VHS tapes and get a tremendous amount of information. But until you take instruction, then you go back, it opens all of those up. So there's almost, not intentionally, but perhaps intentionally, hidden messages in there that I see what you're saying now. You connect the dots. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a simple statement that you take at face value is not the statement to be taken at face value. It's so much deeper. And I think that's the same with, like, Nelson's writings. When he wrote stories, he provided information. But what he, I think his biggest thing was is he wanted to get you to think. Yeah. Because you could never be him. Yeah. But he wanted you to be able to walk in and assess and analyze and provide a solution. And I think that's what all the all the great instructors do is because you can't become them. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's a good point. Give you the tools to be able to if you put in the time and effort. Right. And and, and to to reassure you that it's okay to engage in critical thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's not just this way to do it, and right. don't step outside the right. lines. And but there again, if I went and uh, took instruction from Bob Went too. Okay. And that, what I was looking to get from him was how to catch the most coyotes in the shortest amount of time. And I did the research, and for me, he seemed to be the guy, and it was. Yeah. And for there. He's a machine. Really? And uh, there's, it, that's entirely different than trapping, say, out west on is uh, setting up a line on a ranch. Yeah. He's targeting an area that has just a tremendous amount of population and going in there and just whacking the hell out of them. Which, that's the object. The least amount of financial outlay for the most amount of financial income. Right. And that's, that's what he's, and that's what I was looking for. Yeah. You know, as in, about an hour and a half in the instruction, he, he looked at me and he said, what the hell are you doing here? You know how to catch coyotes. <laughs> I said, yeah, I don't need you to teach me how to make a set, but what you're actually doing just the habits and is you're answering the questions I got by yeah. just observing how you're operating in it there again I think to say for someone did they call it one or two coyotes it might have been overwhelming but that what I was in Jesus gonna be a bad statement you make that was behind me. I was looking to, to behind the curtain. Yeah, you know, it's reading in between the lines, and it, and I got, and I got there again. If you want to, if you want to know how to commercial fur harvest, you won't go wrong if you go with him. Yeah. Huh. Well, one of the common themes outside of the trapping world, just in general, is you find 
people that are the best in their profession and spend time as much time with them as you can and you're going to pick that that stuff up if you want to get better oh absolutely it, uh, you know there again i've got a, a million great ideas but if i go to implement them they're not a failure if someone else has <laughs> and they're a million dollar money maker <laughs> yeah but it's I, I've talked to a lot of what I consider really good trappers, and the one resounding theme through all of them is, is complete utter confidence in their ability. It isn't a question of, is, did I choose the right trap? Is this the right set? It's That's a great point. They're never, never doubting. N- nothing. It's the, the question may be, Jesus, did somebody come in here and catch that cow before he got to me? You know, am I waiting on an animal that's already been harvested? Yeah. Is, is perhaps a question. Because you're so confident that if that animal's... Well, for, for one thing, you aren't going to put a coyote trap in the greatest line ever. There's a track. That's the place to put a trap. There's a drop, and that's the place to put a trap. Because there again, you can pick the place, but you can't pick the time. Now, that coyote may have just left there, get shot by a ranch hand, gets run over by a car, someone else catches him somewhere else, but you're on location. Yeah. And you've used a lot of this Western instruction right here. Yeah, it's here. You can combine. All you've got to do is remove the trees. Yeah. And it's the exact same thing. Here is actually easier to pick location because of the trees. But you... There again, you've got easier access out west in this access as in the ability to get to a place where here you've got the trees that block you. Yeah. Um, access is a, is a hard chance anywhere you go nowadays. Oh, yeah, and small pieces of land here to deal right. with. Right. I mean, there's, there's perhaps more coyotes here in Maine than there is in Wyoming, but... You spend more time driving from ones that are accessible to another group that are accessible than than you do out there. But you can, and there again, not everybody out west catches 400, 500 coyotes. That, right, we just hear about the, the big right. timers, yeah. And yeah. the guys that do have access to incredible portions of land. And they've built that, right? those relationships over a right. long period and, of time. And um, it's, it, it can be very difficult to get in. It, it justifiably so. Yeah. Yeah. So where's your next trip? I don't. I don't know. It's. I got a lot of good ideas, but I don't know. I'd, I'd like to go back out west one more time. I think I got. I got enough gas in the tank to do it for a few more years but I don't know how many more yeah but I, I know I'm on the, I'm on the back side of 60 the short side of life so <laughs> but I'm still but you're in good physical condition right I mean, I mean there again that's something that Bob Wimp works out every day 70 something years old and that guy can roll I, I work out every day but I need to because I'm just looking to keep what I got yeah. Um, try to eat right and, uh, and go from there. 
But I, I think I got another good 10 years that I, I could trap cats like that. Yeah. And then I just think, you know, the uh, original equipment would be start wearing out, you know, <laughs> knee replacements and hip replacements. And yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Do all you can. Well, I, absolutely. I'm telling you right now, I've never seen a hearse with roof racks or a trailer hitch. And two or three thousand dollars you spend to go on a trapping adventure. In two years, you'll never know that money was spent. Yeah. It's, it, it'll be a drop in the bucket. It, there'll be a brand new crisis. Someone will be Twitter-pated about something. So go do it. Yeah. Is that your advice to young trappers? Oh, my advice to young trappers is, is do it. Just get out there and do it. If you're a young guy, is get yourself in a profession where you can make enough money to make a year's wages in nine months and then take three months off to trap. And then be smart. All the guys that, uh, like Craig O'Gorman, Bob Wendt, John Graham, all them guys are tremendous businessmen. Yeah. And they've got 401ks, they've got investments, they've got money coming in. Yeah. That's what you need to do so that when it comes time to retire, you have the wherewithal and the means that when you're 55, 60 years old, you can say, all right, I'm done. The hell with this rat race. All I'm going to do is trap from here on out. You've yeah. got some wherewithal. And there's guys here that have done that. Oh, absolutely. And they're, you know, 55, 60 retired, and then they're coyote trapping and right. having a blast. Right. It, you know, they're coyote trapping, Maine, go, either go out west or go down south, um, come back and either spring beaver trap here or spring beaver trap somewhere else. That, that's, view it as a profession, but position yourself so that you can do it. But for young guys, learn to... You ain't gonna make no. The dream of full-time living trapping is no. over. I mean that. Now, if it, you want to go do ADC work, that's one thing. As far as like being a county trapper out west, but there again, if if you don't live in those counties, it's a long, hard grind. Yeah. To get in. Yeah. Well, Eric, we uh, we probably got some demos to go watch. Yeah, we better do that now. <laughs> Before Neil throws us out. Well, thanks very much for, for doing welcome. this. I appreciate it. It is great. It's great to talk with you. So, Alrighty. Have a great day.